0: The following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I imagine that a good number of us no family who have adopted children out of abject poverty. I Think of a, a, a friends who adopted a, a little girl uh, in Brazil who's now a godly woman with a husband here in Greenville. Or people we know at Woodruff Road who adopted children from Haiti. If they'd been left there, they would have simply been in the misery and death and poverty and destruction and corruption of Haiti. But no, they were adopted. And because they were adopted, they then received all the privileges of that family. They had good clothes and food and a comfortable house. They had parents that loved them. They had education. They had wonderful opportunities uh, where they live now. And many of them, by God's grace, has gone on to take advantage of those opportunities. Well, that's an analogy of what we see here in Job chapter 29. Now, Job did not yet understand, as we would uh, from uh, the New Testament, the truth of God's adoption. But he understood the reality of adoption. He knew that God had taken him into unto himself into his home, God's home, into intimate fellowship and communion. And flowing out of that, he recognized all the things that God had done for him and how then he responded in using himself and his possessions to serve his neighbor. Well, this is the analogy for us today. We who fully understand this doctrine of adoption, who have been plucked out of a kingdom worse than Haiti, out of poverty and out of corruption, have been brought into the household of God, as we read and sang in Psalm 65. What a grand and glorious privilege it is. And I I want you this morning to reflect on the privileges that are yours. I want you boys and girls to think about your privileges, being in a Christian family, and having all of the many blessings that you now enjoy. Chapter 29 begins the last section of Job's speeches. In 27 and 28, he gives his first extended parable or proverb. This is wisdom literature, and he was opening up, on the one hand, the retributive justice of God, And on the other hand, in chapter 28, this most remarkable ode to wisdom, showing us that God alone is wise, and it's in the fear of God that we learn wisdom through his word. So we come now to chapter 29, and as we read in verse 1, it seems that Job, in fact, pauses a moment. Um, We get this when he again took up his discourse. Well, why did he stop his discourse? He was given his friends opportunity for one of them to do as they have done before and respond to him. But they were silent. He has silenced them. And so uh, after this pause, he takes up now his last speech, chapters 29 through 31. Now, we overall can think about this speech as a further vindication of Job against it. He's not speaking to them, he's speaking in their presence. But the things that he says are a vindication over against them. So here in chapter 29, all the things they accused him of uh, in the culture, he shows, were absolutely wrong. And more importantly, he shows that uh, the great grief of his life was not the loss of his possessions, even his children, It was loss of the sensible presence of God. Then in chapter 30, he shows why he has uh, murmured and complained the way he has, not as much in self defense, is simply setting forth what's happened to him in the culture and then at the hands of God. And then in chapter 31, he vindicates himself against those awful charges of Eliphaz of wickedness and idolatry. So this morning, we look here at chapter 29, uh, a second proverbial speech, 29 through 31. And what I want you to get from this chapter is that the believer should esteem the blessings of God and use them to serve his neighbor. The believer should esteem the blessings of God and use them to serve his neighbor. Now, we're going to look at this under three headings. First, the spiritual blessings of God. And then very briefly, I mean, Job almost passes over the physical blessings of God. And then he takes the believer's usefulness with his blessings. So the believer's spiritual blessings, the believer's physical blessings, the believer's usefulness. Well, in verses 1 through 5, Job describes his spiritual blessings, takes up this parable, this discourse with a longing in verse 2. Oh, that I were as in months gone, as in days when God watched over me. Here he opens up his heart. This is the thing that grieves him most. He remembers those days, the months past. They weren't that long ago, you know. It was some fairly brief period of time. And the most singular thing in that brief period of time was that uh, God watched over him. God kept him. Under the shadow of his wings, God preserved him, and God came to him. He then details the three blessings that come from God's watchful preservation. Notice the when, it relates to the wish of verse 2. Oh, that I were as in months gone by. And now, when, three things. His lamp shone over my head. By his light, I walk through darkness. And I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me. Three things here on which Job reflects. The comfortable presence of God, the guidance and protection of God, and intimate communion with God. In the first half of verse 3, he reflects on the comfortable presence of God. This is a figure of speech. When his lamp shone over my head. Apparently, in the days in which Job lived, either in the tent or the house, it was a custom to hang a a, a lamp, a torch of some sort from the ceiling during the night. So, boys and girls, that would be like your nightlight. Some of you have nightlights in your bedroom. Well, they had these nightlights that shone in the house, and the purpose of that was... Uh, to give comfort, particularly you children want that comfort of that light sometimes at night, it was to give comfort to those who were in the house. And what he's saying with this figure of speech is, is that God was his nightlight. God is the one who shone over him in the night with his comfortable presence as he rested and slept. The second blessing that Job enjoyed in the second half of verse 3 is by his light, I walk through darkness. So the light was a sign of comfort at night. But now he speaks about the pathway of his pilgrimage. It would be strewn with stumbling blocks and uh, dangers. And he needed to be kept on that path. And he said it was the light of God. Again, like a torch, a flashlight at night when you're out in the dark trying to walk in a strange place. It was this light of God that guided him. And in that guidance, protected him from the dangers that were around him. Now, you can imagine what's going through his mind because uh, that's all been gone now. The dangers have come upon him. And this is an ascending order. So he starts with the comfortable presence. He moves to uh, the direction, the guidance, and protection of God. But now he comes to that which was most precious, and he devotes two verses to it. As I was in the prime of my days... When the friendship of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me. Notice the opening phrase in verse 4. In the prime of my days, another a beautiful figure of speech. In the Hebrew, is when I was in my autumn. And autumn is the time of, of, of prosperity. Autumn is the time of harvest. He, he says, I was, I'm in the full, fullness of life now. Youth is past and, and the heat of summer. Now he's reveling uh, in these days and in mature life, having already accomplished so much. But in those prime days, in autumn, the friendship of God was over his tent, and the Almighty was yet, notice that word yet, with him. This word friendship actually means counsel or secret. So David writes in Psalm 25, 14, the same word, the secret of Jehovah is for those who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. Now here Job is saying that he had intimate communion with God. God had opened himself up to him probably more than any other man that was alive at that time, at least in his own sphere of of responsibility and labor, uh, that uh, God communed with him. God opened his heart to him. God uh, spoke to him in various ways. And he, he thinks of God as the Almighty. What a remarkable thing that El Shaddai, God Almighty, would be with him and, and he would walk and, and commune with him. And then he alludes briefly to the covenant. And that uh, as God's presence was there, it was with him and his family. I've mentioned to you many times that it's the loss of these things that was Job's great sorrow. I can't imagine the loss of children and possessions and, and beloved servants and all of that. But you see, what he reflects on most were these spiritual blessings. And they were gone as far as he knew. He had no sensible presence of God. Where was God? Where was this God who was his intimate friend and companion? Well, we have this intimate communion with God, my friends, in our adoption. It's a glorious truth. Let me remind you what our confession says about adoption. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed with the guarantees in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they're taken to the number, enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them. Receive the spirit of adoption, of which we read in Galatians and, and meditated in, in Romans. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. And are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Are pitied, protected, provided for. Those things that Job talks about. Um, chastened by him as by a father. That's what Job didn't yet understand. Yet never cast off. But seal of the day of redemption. And inherit promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. salvation. That, dear friends, is what Christ purchased for Job. Um, in retrospect, and for us, in the fullness of understanding what it is that Christ has done for us, do you cherish your privileges as the children of God? Is the presence of God in your life the most important thing to you as you sit here this morning? The fact that, that you can hear the covenant promise, I am your God and you are my people, you are my child. He's spoken to you children in your baptism. He has said to you that he is your God and you are his child. Now he calls on you to make covenant with him. You can't just stop there. You must take hold of him. Yes, and i have you as my God. But that's your responsibility. But it's a privilege that God's given to you to hear him say that he is your God. He calls you unto himself. Do you cherish, dear friends, communion with God? Or is it something that's foreign to you? Maybe maybe this morning is the first thing you've ever thought about it. That as a Christian, I have intimate communion with God. That I can know him in this manner. And if that is true of you, at best you've been poorly taught. But easily could be that you are not yet a child of God. Because you've not yet taken hold of him through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through Christ that we can have this adoption that he's purchased for us. Let us also learn from Job the stark possibility that we can lose the sensible presence of God. Now Job thought he'd lost the presence of God. He was yet with me in the past. Um, we cannot lose the presence of God. The Lord Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit indwells each one of us and has sworn, I will never leave you or forsake you. But we can lose the sensible presence of God. Hear what our confession says with respect to assurance. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation divers, different ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness. And to have no light. Perhaps you have experienced that. Perhaps, as in Job's case, it was a sovereign act of God to test you, to drive you all the more into the arms of Christ. But perhaps it was also because of sin. Because it's when we begin to fall into the practice of sin that God will withdraw from us His sensible presence. I want you to understand. The beauty of what you have in Christ, and the danger—you can quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. I would ask you: Is your favorite sin more important to you today than communion with God? Because your favorite sin will cause God to kind of drop a shade between you and Him, till you cry out in repentance, and so cherish this. Wonderful privilege we have, and and take great advantage of it, and love God for it. Well, that's what Job. That's what hurt him the most, was that he thought he had lost the presence of God. He knew he hadn't done what his friends accused him of doing, but he did not have the foggiest notion what was going on. But he's still reflecting on the past, and so uh, kind of transitioning into verse five and verse six, he briefly passes over his material blessings. And we see here the believer's material blessings. So he says uh, in verse 5b, My children were around me when my steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. These three lines reflect what we are told about Job in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that he had seven sons and three daughters. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. That, those two verses sum up really all the rest of this chapter. But in the first place, they sum up the fact that Job enjoyed now great material blessings because God was his father. He knew he didn't deserve these things, but they had flowed out to him. He had then this large family, and the joy of a large family. I guess sometimes a headache, but uh, ten children, a joy of, of the large family. But notice he, as he reflects on his children around him, which is a great blessing both spiritually and materially. It's a very simple thing in verse 6. My steps were bathed in butter, and the rock poured out from me streams of oil. Interesting. Moses reflects this language in Deuteronomy chapter 32, his song. And um, Moses not written Deuteronomy when Job confessed these things. He knew them from the Lord. Um, 13, he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats. He expresses the, the pleasures of his possessions um, with these two figures. that His steps were bathed in butter. And uh, we've used that expression, haven't we? Everything went as smooth as butter. That's really the I. The the idiom here, there were no obstacles in his life. Uh, You could change the figure. Everything he touched turned to gold. Yes, even the difficulties of his life produced pleasures. And so the idea of oil coming from a flinty rock, nothing, no difficulty could hinder God's great material blessings that he put on Job. Now, We recognize, I hope you recognize as well, that whatever you have today as a Christian, you have as a child of God, and they flow to you not out of your merit or your hard work or your ingenuity, but out of God's grace in your adoption. Don't consider yourself more spiritual than someone who has little or nothing, but God's sovereign in these distributions. And so recognize that what you have is of the Lord, and use it then as a trust and a stewardship. That's why we serve God with tithes and offerings. We're recognizing, we're owning the fact that everything that we have is His. It's not ours, it's not the government's. It's God's, and we have been given it as stewards. But thank Him then. As we sit here today... um, there's none of us that are abjectly poor. Some have had hardships and having to uh, go to school and, and, and make different arrangements and stuff like that, and life's been difficult. But, you know, we are greatly blessed. And we need to give God thanksgiving for that as we reflect on it. But again, the blessings are not to be used for ourselves, they're to be used for God. So remember our theme we are to esteem God's blessings and use them to serve our neighbor. So we've seen the believer's spiritual blessings and the believer's material blessings, but now the great portion of the chapter is the believer's usefulness. And there are four sections to uh, verses 7 through 25. Um, A good reputation, a righteous magistrate, a presumptuous man, and a wise counselor. Job begins in verses 7 through 10 talking about a reputation. This was the next most precious thing to him more than his possessions as he works his way through this. When I went out to the gate of the city, verse 7, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. The old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking, put their hands on their mouths. The voice of nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to Their palate. What graphic uh, description here of a reputation of a godly man. The gate of the city, the square there, is where the uh, magistrates and the chief elders of the city would meet. They could meet for uh, coffee and tea and just visit and be available. They would meet for uh, adjudicating special cases. And uh, Job now is picturing for us that he's gone out the gate of the city and he, because of his reputation, has the chief seat. He is preeminently above all others. That then is worked out for us in these classes of people. And so uh, the young men who might be boisterous and want to put themselves forward at other times, slink back into the crowd. They do not want to stand out in the presence of Job. Men even older than he, as he came to his seat, would stand out of respect to Job. And in fact, the noblemen and the princes themselves would quit talking, put their hands over their mouths, their tongue would cling to the top of their mouth in the presence of Job. Because Job, you see, had this reputation as a godly and righteous man. And there's no thing that you can possess outside of your righteousness in Christ that's more important in life than your reputation. Solomon uh, speaks of the importance of reputation. He says, um, Proverbs 22, 1, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. In Ecclesiastes 7, 1, he teaches that its reputation is better than ointment, something to be treasured. Do you think much about your reputation? What do your neighbors, what do your coworkers, your employer, or your fellow workers, uh, are you of your employer? What do you think about them? Reputation is so very important. It can take months and years to build a good reputation. It can take minutes to destroy it. We need to be aware of, of it. Any of you here today Some are elders, and others prepare to be elders and uh, ministers in the church, and these two of us are uh, pastors in the church. And we need to be heedful of the importance of uh, the reputation. As Paul speaks to us in 1 Timothy 3, 2, 7, 10, and 11, how elders and deacons are to have a good report in the congregation, but also in the community. And you, as a Christian, what does Paul say in Colossians chapter four? Let your words be seasoned as it were with salt, which you'll know how to give an answer to every man. That your reputation would be as such that your your neighbor would come alongside of you with a really important question about life. And you'll be able to give a wise answer. And so thank God for reputation. Guard it very carefully. He moves in from reputation to what that allowed him to do, and that is he was a powerful and righteous magistrate. You notice he makes a transition in verse 11. For when the ear heard about him, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, gave witness to me because... So what is the ear hearing? What is being witnessed? What's what he now goes on to speak of. It wasn't just a reputation. But now he's being blessed because he was a gracious, wise, righteous magistrate. So he explains what he did as at the chief seat of the city gate. I delivered the poor who cried for help. We had four classes of people. I delivered the poor who cried for help, the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. There's no more abject and, and helpless people uh, in society than the poor who are in desperate need of help or the orphan who has been abandoned uh, for the one who's perishing and for the widow. But you see, as a magistrate, he carefully tended to the rights of all of these people and I think implied as a personal, in his personal use of wealth, that uh, it wasn't just that he was giving settling cases. No, he was concerned about the poor and the needy. Now, as a magistrate, he says that he, um, he put on righteousness, verse 14, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. And I think righteousness and justice are simply synonyms. That Now, the execution of the application of God's law was his righteousness here as a judge. Now, again, in Job's days, eminent men would put on these uh, beautiful uh, robes and uh, as a sign of their wealth. And they would have these really fancy turbans. And Job said, my, my robe is my righteousness. My turban is my justice in the execution of office. And in his personal involvement, he says in verse... Fifteen, that he was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. Sixteen, a father to the needy. And not simply, again, in his public capacity, but in his personal um, involvement in the uh, lives of people, that he would allow no one to put a stumbling block in front of a blind person or trick them or abuse them, and he would make sure that the lame had feet to get to where they needed to be. In 17, he speaks then of his carefulness. He said, um, or excuse me, in in the verse 16, I investigated the case which I did not know. He knew no prejudice or partiality. Yes, he cared for the poor, but the poor received no partiality. And nor did the rich have any favor in his sight when he came to judge. He carefully investigated every case and then decided accordingly. In doing so, he delivered the innocent from the guilty. In verse 17, I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. He was a glorious, excellent magistrate and a very beneficent man. And I think sometimes that we as Christians, today is political arena because Uh, the government's doing things it shouldn't be doing, Uh, and because we are very concerned about the moral issues in our culture, I believe that we can uh, uh, be blind to the genuine poor. And I will deal with that, Lord willing, in the sermon a bit next week. We must have heart for the poor. We must not show partiality. and we must not sow partiality, James says, to the wealthy one who comes into our midst. If someone comes into our fellowship that's bedraggled and, and smelly, but they've come here uh, into our fellowship, uh, we must receive them as, as the genuine poor and then seek to discern their case as Job carefully investigated and bring the glorious gospel message to them. It also speaks to us, again, as elders, because we're the magistrates of the church. And uh, we also must not judge with partiality. Some of you will go to a small church, there's going to be one or two wealthy people that are used to running that thing. And you're going to be afraid to confront them in their sin. And you're going to show favoritism. I mean, that's the temptation, I know. But we must not do that, you see. In the church courts, Paul, even James speaks to us in chapter 2 not to do it in the assembly. In the church courts, Paul speaks about that in 1 Timothy 5. We must not show partiality in the church courts. We want to seek to judge with equity. I note as well something here that our confession teaches us, and that is it is a good thing for a Christian to pursue the office of public servant. It is a noble calling if God calls you to that. And if you have inklings in those areas, then you should speak to um, mature Christians and elders and search these things out because we're in desperate need of such people. So we've seen the reputation, and we've seen his use as a magistrate, but now we see his presumption. It, It kind of hinders the flow He's going along here reflecting on the past, but this is bittersweet now, you see. This is what this is. It's bittersweet, verses 18 to 20. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. We sang about God putting birds in the nest and Job recognized that he had God's protection uh, in this nest of God, this safe place where he was nestled. He uh, recognized that um, uh, he would die. And it's a good thing in our prosperity to think about dying, in our security. Uh, Never let that thought be far from you that we're all going to die. Boys and girls, you could die today. And that's why it's so important that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I don't presume that you're going to live to be as old as I am. So um, he was thinking, and actually the word thought is said. He said to himself, I know I'm going to die, but I'm going to die in great comfort. And my days are going to be lengthened as innumerable as a sand on the seashore. He continues the figure. We think of Psalm 1, my, my root is spread out to the waters. He was so well nourished. The very dew, the blessing of heaven was upon him as upon branches at night. And so his glory, his service, his reputation was ever new. His strength was unabating. My bow was renewed in my hand. Now, this is indeed bittersweet, isn't it? Joe was being quite honest here. He said, you know, I thought I would live out a good life with these blessings, being useful in the community, and die happy in old age. And that was not God's plan, you see. He presumed. We must be careful not to presume all that we have today can be taken from us tomorrow. And it's important that we live that way, that we understand that. My wife and I were talking yesterday again, you know, I, I often think, you know, if God called on me to walk away from all I have for his glory, could I do it? By God's grace, I could do it. But we need to be aware of that. We need to, uh, in fact, which, uh, one of the books that we've studied uh, mentions to us uh, that we are to use our times of blessing to prepare for times of affliction. Do you do that? Do you recognize that it could all be gone, and so you are preparing your heart in thankfulness and obedience and service to God? And not presume that because everything's great today, it will be tomorrow of each day in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Job returns to one more thing, and that is his wisdom as a counselor. This really kind of completes the circle. He said, to me, they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain Opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe. The light of my face did not they did, did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief, dwelt as king among the troops, as one who comforted the mourners. Because he had this intimate communion with God, because he knew the mind of God, in light of what he's just said, in chapter 28, Job was an exceedingly wise man. In fact, in Job 1.3, remember, he was the wisest of the men of the east who were noted to be most preeminent in wisdom in all the known world. But his wisdom was not of himself. His wisdom because he communed with God. He knew the mind of God. He had the spirit of God working in him. And because of that, when he spoke, they listened They waited, and they kept silent for his counsel. And when he gave his word, because he was so wise, there was nothing else to say. He said, they didn't speak again. Again, this language of of, um, Moses in Deuteronomy 32, let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as showers on the herb. He spoke. And his speech was refreshing. Because it was the wisdom of God. And it's the idea that perhaps yesterday it was hot and then it rained and you went outside and it was cool. Or on a hot day and you rain and you open your mouth. Let the rain refresh you and come in. That's, That's Job's speech. And even when... Their response was not what it ought to be. He was patient with them. You see in verse 25, I smiled on them when they did not believe. It's a difficult word to uh, translate. It's actually the word in chapter 30, verse 1 that those people mocked him. It's the word laugh. But Think what Job is saying. He said, I smiled on them and the light of my face they did not cast down. They didn't agree uh, and yet he didn't get uptight about it. When I read this, I thought of Paul in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. He says, leave the results to the spirit. Teach and rebuke with patience. Perhaps God gives repentance. And so he didn't scowl in a way to cause them to be cast down in his presence. No, he was patient as well in his teaching. And because of this, he was preeminent leader then in the community. He set out the way for the community now. As a king in front of um, his troops, he led them by wise decisions. And when there was grief and sorrow, his words comforted the mourners. Again, I cannot help but think about my role as a preacher. Mm, Jax, you men that will be preachers by God's grace, elders in the church. Oh, how I want my speech to drop like Rain is to still do droplets on the ground that can only come by seeking the face of God in the preparation of our sermons, keeping our own hearts open to hear what God has to say. But let all of us be this way. You parents with your children, may your, your counsel be sweet and wise and patient. Your children learn to listen to the counsel of your parents and your teachers, because they're much wiser than you are. And you should put your hand over your mouth. And you should listen to what they have to say. So you see why I say that I want you to esteem your blessings so that you will be able to serve your neighbor. Esteem these spiritual blessings of your adoption. For there's nothing greater than be the intimate child of God, gathered into his arms and living in his house. And that's manifested in being part of a congregation. Of God's people. And thank him for that which with which he has blessed you. And um, don't take it for granted, but use it. Yes, your comfort, but for his glory and to serve your neighbor. Be a public-minded person in all that you have. What we have is not our own. It's to be used. Don't presume on what you have, but prepare. And be wise. To be wise, you must be in the word of God. It must be the Spirit of God who is teaching you. But in all of this, have that mind of Christ to serve your neighbor. As we read of Christ in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through you, through his poverty, might become rich. Give yourself sacrificially. And service to God and neighbor. And of course, then we know that there's no day that we've ever done that. And so we move from Christ as example to Christ as Savior. And we will mourn our selfishness and our failure to serve and we'll ask for pardon. And because He is our Savior, He then freely grants us that pardon. Let's pray. <clears> o <throat> oh, holy and glorious God, we thank you for. The wisdom of this book, and although we mine its treasures, and often, Lord, it's difficult to distill, and yet we believe, Lord, you've shown us beautiful truths here, and we ask that your Spirit will press them into our hearts and the hearts of our children. And if there is anyone here this morning who's not yet come in repentance and faith and taken hold of Jesus Christ by faith, that they might be adopted as your children with your Spirit even now. Work this in them, for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.